Chapter 12, Tree of Life. Before getting more into what or who the Tree of Life is, it would be good to set the foundation. That said, one of the words the translators tweak due to tradition is God. The word translated God is the Canaanite word Elohim, which was their father God, which the Israelites adopted. The interesting thing about Elohim is it's plural, which strangely the translators almost invariably translated into the singular. Obviously, the mindset of the Protestants, including Christianity and Judaism, is that there is only one God, so God's or Elohim doesn't work for them. That conclusion is quite strange considering the Bible is full of pagan gods and the worship of them. In fact, the first commandment was a warning not to place any of those other gods before or above Yahweh. That's a direct acknowledgement there are other gods, although as noted earlier, there is only one God to be worshipped. Considering the Protestant translators couldn't accept more than one God, they had a big problem. The creation account of Genesis 1 using the plural words of us and our. How could they make the plural, the Genesis scriptures de denote only one God when the language is clearly plural? It probably wouldn't be much of a, an issue except Genesis 1.26, which is the first creation account of mankind. Uh, the context demands Elohim be translated into the English plural. It says there, then God, or Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Again, the us and our demand a plural word for God, which would be God's. So to solve the problem, at least in the translator's mind, their explanation of the plural words us and our are referring to God the Father and His Son Jesus, whom they also claim are one. With that in mind, let's read Genesis 1.27 with Elohim correctly rendered. So God, that is Elohim, created them in his or their image, in the image of the gods he created them, male and female, they created them. The belief, the us and ours, is a father, God, and a son, is part of the problem. Again, to have a father and son without a mother is a literal, a literal impossibility. Without a mother... All there can be is a creator and his creation, or clone. Certainly not a true father and son. One of the greatest shocks to the modern Bible-believing world is the creators do teach there actually is a mother and wife of the creator, Yahweh. Since the translators were not taught such a concept, they could not allow the scriptures to proclaim it. But if the creator is raising up a family for himself, which is the subtle underlying theme of the, the Bible, doesn't he first need a wife and mother for his children? That's such a no-brainer which makes it so shocking it's been so thoroughly rejected by Christianity and Judaism. After all, what is so wrong with the concept of a heavenly mother and father, i.e. a family? Well, there is something or someone that hates the entire concept of the traditional marriage and family. That is the angelic rule, ruler of this world, the dragon. You see, to be a child of the Creator is something this creature or its demonic acolytes for that matter, can never be, which has filled most of them with such envy leading to outright visceral hatred. In fact, everywhere we look these days, we see a trend to destroy the entire concept of traditional marriage, that is, of one woman and one man, as well as a traditional family. Not only that, they are also working to completely erase the differences in the sexes, to render us all bisexual. No wonder they don't want humanity to know the Creator Father has a wife, who is our spirit mother. She and Yahweh are or will be our parents, and we their children, i.e. the traditional eternal family.
But as shocking as the evil one's success has been in destroying the whole concept of traditional marriage and family at this point, they're going to fail in the end, that is. Books such as this exposing them is one of the reasons. Getting to the scriptural proclamation of the wife of Yahweh and mother of his children, then, we find it right there in Proverbs 8 and 9. Considering these chapters are all about the teaching of wisdom, the Greek translators, that is guided by their spirit puppet masters, chose to change Yahweh's wife's name, Hokma, to Sophia or in the Greek or wisdom in the English. But wisdom is simply a function of thought and reason resulting in various actions, and not a person at all. But in closely examining Proverbs 8 and 9, we see an unmistakable person and, I, of course, a personality. That said, we find this female entity, Hokma, very plainly addressing her children in Proverbs 8 and 9. Looking closely at her words, which, by the way, are all in the feminine text, it's very clear she is not only a female, but a wife and a mother. Obviously, the first big question is her origin, which she plainly tells us in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. There it says, Yahweh created me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been or was established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there ever was an earth. According to this passage, she was created before the angels and certainly before the earth and mankind. And besides, it's impossible to create wisdom without the one creating it to already be wisdom and or wise, which would make it an exercise completely pointless and or redundant. Again, if one desires to be a father of a family, the first thing he needs is a wife to be the mother of his children. To solidify or to solidly establish that, verse 30 uh, tells us that she frolicked and danced before Yahweh. It was badly translated rejoice, but again, an aspect of thought and reason certainly does not rejoice, let alone frolic and or flirt. Obviously, we are talking about a person. Not just a person, but a female displaying a personal, even sexual aspect to their relationship. She goes on to tell us, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him a master craftsman. I was beside him a master craftsman. Do you catch that astonishing admission? The scripture is proof of one, the ones who creating man and woman in Genesis 1 are. Let's take a close look at what the creator said. Let us make man in our image. And then they go on to say, and they created them male and female. Let's be honest here. How can the creators create mankind in their image, male and female, unless the creators themselves are not also male and female? If the creators were only male, how could they say they created man and woman in our image without lying? But when we plug in, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I, that is Hokma, was beside him as a master craftsman, suddenly everything falls perfectly into place. The ones creating man and woman in their image were none other than Yahweh and his wife Hokma. Suddenly Genesis 1.27 becomes so clear and sensible. In light of Hokma being the wife of Yahweh and a mother of mankind, Look what else she proclaims in Proverbs 8, verse 7. There she says, For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to me. Well, that's quite a statement, but see what she adds in verse 34. Blessed is the man who listens to me. 
What those scriptures tell us, she is our teacher who does not lie, plus her teachings bring blessings. With the theme of this chapter in mind, i.e. the tree of life, look at what she goes on to say in verse 35. There she says, for whoever finds me finds life. And that would be synonymous with immortality. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. In other words, those who discover Hokmah, our creator mother, find immortality. And as an added bonus, finding her brings favor with her husband Yahweh, our creator father. Adding an ominous overtone to those who reject her and the concept of her, she goes on to say, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. That's verse 36. Those are very strong words to which any wise person would do well to pay attention. The scriptural proof Yahweh has a wife who is so obviously the mother of mankind with her admonition, Listen to me, my children. That's verse 32. That scripture cannot be more dogmatic as to who or what she is. But it's so much grander and literal than most can possibly imagine. Again, everything in this physical world is quite literally a type or physical copy of the spirit realm. The physical woman is a copy of the spirit woman. When a woman is in her younger years, that is before menopause, she ovulates or produces eggs, which, if not fertilized by a male sperm, are flushed out and die. But if fertilized, they become embryos in the mother's womb and after a gestation period are born. Well, the same thing is true in the spirit realm. Only we humans are the eggs in our spirit mother. If we are fertilized by the male sperm, that is Yahweh's spirit, we become fetuses in our spirit mother. And then when born, that is born again, born from above. Ever heard of that, being born again? Uh, yeah. Then when we're born again, we will have literal spirit bodies. Like it says in John 3, when Yeshua was talking to Nicodemus, how when we're born again, we'll be like the wind. That's right, literal spirit. <clears throat> in fact, there in John 3, uh, Yeshua again, he said, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And he goes on to say, like the wind. With that knowledge, if that knowledge isn't enough, we find even more eye-opening understanding looking into the meaning of the Hebrew letters of Hokmah's name. Hebrew is a picture language. Each letter is a picture bearing its own meaning. Those Hebrew letters spelling Hokmah are He, Bet, Dalet, and He. Interestingly, the first and last letters, hey, mean window and or to reveal. Considering her admonitions to listen to her words and instruction, the letter hey takes on great meaning. But what really speaks volumes is one of the letters in the middle. That letter is bet, meaning sukkah or tabernacle or small temporary dwelling place. And shockingly can also be rendered womb. What an amazing coincidence. Well, not. The letter, meaning womb, is right there in the middle of her name, exactly where her womb would be. Again, the picture these letters paint is truly amazing. With the astounding picture painted by the letters in Hokma's name in mind, the people were instructed to build small temporary dwellings called sukkahs in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is English for the Hebrew word sukkah, which properly rendered by context is womb, a small temporary abode. Considering that prospect, there are at least three prophecies of a great outpouring of Yahweh's Spirit at the beginning of the New Eden, that is, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkahs. That means all those upon whom Yahweh's Spirit is poured are now fertilized eggs, and i.e. fetuses in 
our mother Hokma's womb. But again, to be a fetus or embryo, we must be in a womb. Of course, that womb is Yahweh's wife, our spirit mother. Then after an apparent 50-year gestation period, we will be born of spirit into their spirit world and family, just as Yeshua told Nicodemus in John 3. That being the case, partaking of this tree of life obviously did not literally entail the eating of the Creator himself or Hokmah, but could only be a reference to partaking of a certain way of living or behaving, that is, embracing his Torah instructions, that is, his instructions on love. We find this thought reinforced by the Messiah in the New Testament in John 8. There will told those who keep my words, that is his father's actually, would never taste death. I.e. would be immortal. Isn't that the same promise given in the garden, the tree of life? Immortality is more than just a choice, but a choice of loving, respectful behavior. My personal perspective is the Creator's Torah, that is the fruit of the tree of life, is like the house rules parents give their own children. Considering that concept, if we are the Creator's children, which the Creator refers to as His people all through the Bible, wouldn't we also have house rules or instructions? Are we not just His children on another level? One thing we must keep in mind, children, of whatever level, left to themselves, will, uh, one way or another, almost certainly destroy themselves. Again, isn't a normal, loving parent's instruction, that is, house rules, all about ensuring their children grow up happy, healthy, and prosperous? Wouldn't the Creator's Torah instructions for us be for the same reasons? If Yahweh is the loving father figure he portrays himself to be in so many scriptures, and he's raising children to be his family, the answer to that is an obvious yes. Sadly, the Creator's house instructions were incorrectly translated into the English word law. Law and Torah are vaguely familiar, but do not have the same depth of meaning at all. Law is a system imposed or forced upon a people or society, while Torah is more like road signs. Road signs inform us where we are and are our guide to where we want to be. Law, conversely, is obligatory and dictates compliance under threat of punishment. Torah freely gives a person his choice to follow the instructions on the road signs of life or not. Of course, if we refuse to follow those road signs, the resulting consequences or fruits are that we simply won't end up where we want to be. Naturally, where we want to be is happy, healthy, and prosperous, not to mention immortal. Again, immortality is the true fruit of the Torah tree of life. Immortality of the Torah tree of life also comes with health, prosperity, happiness, and freedom. Some of those Torah road signs uh, we would be wise to pay attention to are the Ten Commandments listed in Deuteronomy 5. Those are some of the signs that tell us where we don't want to go. Following those road signs prevents us from destroying friendships, family, society, and nations. Our nation, not to mention our personal happiness and prosperity. It doesn't take much of a look around to see that not heeding those Torah signs is what has resulted in the world being in the mess it's in. More scriptures detailing the consequences of heeding or not heeding those Torah instructions can be found in Deuteronomy 30. There the Creator explains that failing to heed his Torah road signs results in cursings, that is, versus blessings. Of course, cursed is one definition for not receiving the blessings, uh, one of the most major of those being life or immortality. On the side of reaping blessings, we find the Ten Commandments, literally ten words in the Hebrew, 
are but our signs warning us where we don't want to go if we're looking for happiness, peace, and prosperity. The road signs telling us where to go to find the good things are most commonly found in the Messiah's teachings in Matthew 5 and 6. These are the positive sides of the ten road signs. When the Messiah was asked which of those ten words or instructions was most important, his answer was very interesting. Rather than quoting one of them, he summarized them. That's in Matthew 22. Actually, his summarization was a quote from Deuteronomy 6 of the Torah. He said, first, love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and in your neighbor as yourself. That scripture should have come no surprise, considering that's all the Torah was designed to accomplish, to teach us how to love. Honestly, learning how to love and respect our Creator Yahweh and each other is our sole purpose in this physical uh, dimension or existence. In conjunction with those Torah love signs, it's been said, the greatest love a parent can show a grown, educated child is the freedom to make and embrace his or her choices. And of course, that includes the bad ones. Unfortunately, the consequences of bad choices is how we learn. That's an excellent example of Torah, more commonly again referred to as tough love. Again, human laws attempt to force the adult child to make the supposed right choice, whomever deems what's right, rather than allowing us to choose and experience the results of our own choices. Forcing someone to make only good choices or shielding them from the consequences of bad choices is not freedom, not true freedom, anyway. Even though it's supposedly done out of true concern, the natural bent of human nature, unfortunately, is control, manipulation, and slavery. The key to true freedom, then, is to make uncoerced choices for good and then fight for those choices. Only through fighting can our good choices become real. The fruits of following or not following the Creator's Torah seem to be seem to operate on an unseen plane like gravity. Not believing in gravity, just as not believing in Yahweh's Torah, does not negate its effects. There's a built-in cause and effect, whether we accept it as real or not. <laughs>